two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventures piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. We all know those words, whether it be from high school English, a fascination with the movie adaptations, or possibly an enduring love of the bard. Romeo and Juliet has long been held as the epitome of a romance, despite it truly being a tragedy. And yet, few people outside of academia or fanaticism realize where the story of Romeo and Juliet actually comes from. So today, let's talk about a rose by any other name and find out where William found his immortal words. Hey there, romance nerds! I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's, Let's rage! rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes? What were Romeo and Juliet's favorite fruit? What? Cantaloupe. (laughs) Hey! That's a good one. Thanks, Jen. Oh, no. Well, as always, a big shout out to Noble for sponsoring Raging Romantics. Thank you. And a huge, ginormous shout out to you, you lovely listener. Thanks for putting this in your ear for however long this episode takes. It is a Jackie episode. It is a history episode. So it's a little longer than what our past couple episodes have been aiming for. Sorry, not sorry. As a brief aside before we begin, I just want to share that I went to Boston on a trip recently. I haven't been since I was in high school. And I went to see some of my favorite podcasters, Red Handed, do a live show. And it was awesome. And now I'm convinced that Jen and I need to film our antics because we need to save it for when we're super popular and touring the United States. It was miserable filming that one time. There is a reason it is off the internet because it's not good. But this time we can be candid about it. Just think of our lively truck chats we used to have. We could have filmed that. It would have been entertaining. Oh, God. Nobody needs to see the truck (laughs) chat. What happens in the truck stays in the truck. This is true. That is one of the rules about the pop-up. Especially when I spent the winter at a goat farm and it smelled like a goat forever afterwards. It wasn't a goat. It was just next to a goat farm. Okay, well, it stank. It wasn't at the goat farm. It was like really bad goat And it wasn't because of the goats. It was because of the mice that got into the engine. Oh. So, there. Uh Ha, 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 ha. That's inappropriate. Ratted you out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's appropriate because if you like true crime, cults, murder, mysteries, anything like that, you should definitely go check out (laughs) Red Handed. And as a general content warning for this episode, Jen's mouse story aside kind of sets the theme for this. <laughs> Poor Jen has a cough. I'm so good. I'm so good. <laughs> oh, God. Great. I'm really trying to make her not chortle so much. That would help because I can't. Okay. Okay. I can't laugh today. As a general content warning for this episode, we are going to be talking about suicide and manner of death. So please, if you find that content triggering, then go ahead. You can listen to one of the episodes we've linked down below instead. 
But for now, let's talk about Romeo and Juliet. If you remember from Jen's last episode, I said that I really wanted to talk about murder. And alas, while a lot of true crime is indeed prompted by love affairs, jilted lovers, romance gone wrong, etc. I couldn't find anything having to do with romance books. If you guys know of anything, shoot us an email at ragingromantics.nopal.org. I read a great story, Alice and Frida, about a early lesbian couple who uh, the one stabbed the other when she went to get engaged to a man. Oh, that's I guess that's a bad love story. Yeah. I mean, most of them are when they end in death. Yeah. Like you really can't have a true crime love story unless it's like two serial killers in love with each other. But even then they like turn on each other. I could only think of Bonnie and Clyde and I was like, well, look how that. Well, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. That was a mess too. I guess like love and crime don't really mix outside of dark romance, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Well, actually, no, I take that back. It's good. It's good. (laughs) That's not bad. Sorry. (laughs) Go listen to Jen's mafia episode. (laughs) Dark romance. So I thought, why not talk about one of the most infamous love stories that ends with a tragic exercise of futility? The story of Romeo and Juliet is generally well known, and there are a lot of really good movie adaptations, including one excellent musical number. Um, So I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version to kind of hit the main beats we need to look out for. Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet were the children of two warring families in Verona, Italy, sometime around the 14th century. They meet accidentally at a masked ball hosted by the Capulets, where when Romeo and some of his buddies come in because basically they want to check out the girls and see Rosalind, who Romeo is pining over. And by the way, Juliet is 13 and Romeo is somewhere around 17 years old, so just keep that in mind in case you didn't know that factoid. Anyways. Romeo sees Juliet, falls into instalust. Juliet falls into love and blah, 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 young love, ultimately meaning that they decide to get married the next day, as you do when you're 13 and 17. Juliet's nursemaid decides to help them because she just wants Juliet happy. The wedding is a success, and they spend one night together as husband and wife, and they do consummate their marriage. Mm Mm-hmm. Following the wedding, Juliet's cousin Tybalt challenges Romeo to a duel, but Romeo refuses to fight, and his friend Mercutio, so angered by the challenge, fights in his stead. Mercutio is killed, Romeo stops the fight, and in anger kills Tybalt. Because of the murder, Romeo is banished from Verona. The same friar who married them helps married them decides to help Juliet and Romeo escape and gives them one night together in the city before Romeo has to leave. The friar then plots with Juliet who is being forced into another marriage by her father to this dude named Paris to get her a sleeping draft that makes her appear dead so that they can smuggle her out of the city. Except the note that they send to Romeo to let him know that it's all fake doesn't arrive in time because the plague. Romeo hears through the grapevine that Juliet is dead and buys a poison, returns to the tomb in Verona, kills Paris at the side of the tomb, takes the poison, and kills himself. Of course, because of dramatic irony, this is when Juliet wakes up and finds both her husband and her husband to be dead at her tomb side and kills herself on Romeo's dagger. Remember that. That is an important factoid. The deaths of the children, on a lighter note, do force the two warring families to make amends, and a glooming peace this morning with it brings, for never was a tale of more woe than that of Juliet and of her Romeo. Okay, cool. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about literary transmission. And this is not the type of transmission that shifts your car into different gears. No, literary transmission is where you follow the tale, basically, back through history to see, much like etymology, where this tale evolved from. And then you use literary analysis to talk about why you think the tale and bits of the tale remain so popular and were translated into different versions. And that's what we're doing today. To quote one of my sources... Few stories have aroused as much critical attention or have proved as adaptable to different genres as that dealing with the chivalrous but ill-fated love of Romeo and Juliet at odds with a hostile and materialistically oriented society. Let's start with William's version. 
Shakespeare penned Romeo and Juliet sometime between 1591 and 1596. It most certainly would have been on stage by 1597, though there are no surviving records of it playing until after 1660 with the Restoration. Based on language and textual similarities, we can date Romeo and Juliet to the same time frame as Love's Labor's Lost, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Richard II. It's a common opinion that Romeo and Juliet was written after Midsummer Night's Dream based upon the content of the comedy, which I'll get into in a second. To add some drama, the first quarto, or publication, of Romeo and Juliet was leaked in 1597 on a pirated copy, or a bad quarto. So when you see reference to the first bad quarto, it's not like it was like poorly, it was, it was pirated. This pirated version was released, that was released, was based on a text reconstructed from memory by a group who knew the play on stage, thus proving it was definitely being staged by 1597, since the title page directly refers to L. Hunston, not Hudson, Hunston and his servants, the name of Shakespeare's acting company, only until March 16th, 1597. So you know those people nowadays who pirate films, and they like subtly hold their, their phones up, and they video the entire film in a movie theater? That was basically what these people were doing, except, you know, pre cell phone they were trying to recreate the text were they taking notes during the play with their little quills that's cute (laughs) what do you say john trying to do it behind somebody's back that's fun exactly in addition it's entirely likely that shakespeare at least in my opinion was inspired to write romeo and juliet through his production and creation of a midsummer night's dream one of my personal favorite comedies if you're not familiar with midsummer it's a farce of a play really about a wedding that goes amok with fairies and couples getting lost in the woods but at the same time there's a play within the play there's a troop of actors who is hired to come to the wedding and they put on the story of pyramus and thisbe an old roman tale that is one of the earliest origins of of Romeo and Juliet, but we aren't quite there yet. In Midsummer, the comedic troupe, no, notoriously known because their main actor kind of gets turned into a donkey head and the queen of the fairies falls in love with him, does a pantomime of Pyramus and Thisbe, where two lovers meet through a wall and fall in love speaking through the wall. Thou wall, a wall, a sweet and lovely wall, show me thy chink to blink through with mine eyne. It's like love is blind before TV. Yeah, yeah. Um, If you've never seen Midsummer before, I highly recommend the movie adaptation with Michelle Pfeiffer. It remains one of my favorite adaptations of all time. I love it so much. Nobody really knows what came first, Midsummer or Romeo and Juliet, the chicken or the egg, but either way, there is no doubt that they were a direct inspiration to one another. It's entirely plausible that Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet first, as inspired by another source we'll get to in a second, and then wanted a comedic take on it, so wrote in the origins of the story with Pyramus and Thisbe to provide levity and to provide a sort of like a walking billboard. Like, hey, did you see this comedic take with a personified wall? Come see a longer, bloodier, more drawn-out version with teenage acne. Wait, so he did like a like a fan fiction of his own work? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is some consideration in that Midsummer wasn't officially published until 1600, but according to the title page of that publication, it had been, quote, sundry times publicly acted by the right honorable, the Lord Chamberlain, his servants. And it was praised by Francis Miris in his Pilatus Tamia, so it must have been written before that book's publication in 1598. It's also plausible that Shakespeare wrote Midsummer and was so taken with the story that his muse told him to write a longer version into Romeo and Juliet, hence the, fa- hence the fan fiction. Personally, this is the boat that I'm on, but until I get that time machine working, I will never know the truth. Regardless, we undoubtedly have the first iteration of Romeo and Juliet being staged by 1597 and Midsummer, which features a window into the Pyramus and Thisbe legend right around the same time. 
But where did these two tragic lovers come from? What influenced Shakespeare to write about two teenagers? For that, we have to go back to one of my personal favorite time periods, the Roman Empire. Don't worry, I'm not going to break out my Latin or go into Roman history. Instead, let's just talk about Ovid's Metamorphoses and the legend of Pyramus and Thisbe. The Metamorphoses is a collection of poems written across 15 books that was penned by the Roman poet Ovid around the year 8 CE. It is a collection of mythological and legendary stories, many taken from Greek or earlier sources, in which tra transformation, aka metamorphosis, plays a role. The stories, which are unrelated, are told in chronological order from the creation of the world, aka the first metamorphosis, the, from chaos into order, to the death and deification of Julius Caesar, which was the culminating metamorphosis of Ovid's time. The Metamorphoses remains one of the primary sources for a lot of classic Roman legends that we cite today, such as Lycaon, Io and Jupiter, Daphne and Apollo, and a lot of the Herculean feats. Importantly for this discussion, though, it is the first extant record of the tale of Pyramus and Thisbe, tragic Babylonian lovers. I say Babylonian with a grain of salt, because in truth we don't really know where Ovid first found or heard the story. He did take the story in his own words from a less popular tale, or a vulgaris fabula non est, which is this story isn't a popular one, and uses metamorphoses as a flowing sort of narrative, wherein the poem before, which is a story about a princess who transforms into a bat, sounds kind of fun to me, um, the handmaids and other ladies tell stories to each other to keep their minds busy while they weave, and one of the stories that they tell is the story of Pyramus and Thisbe. There are extant myths from the areas of Anatolia and the Middle East with names Pyramus and Thisbe used. Of course, not the Roman version. It'll be like the Anatolian and Middle Eastern version of Pyramus and Thisbe. And place names in the same region for rivers or other landscape features that hit, hint at an earlier mythos around characters with these names in those areas. But again, nothing definitive before Ovid. And I can feel your eyes glazing over, Jen. <laughs> so let's talk about Pyramus and Thisbe, as Ovid told us, because the astute of you are probably going to sit up and go, that, that sounds familiar. Pyramus and Thisbe were two youths in ancient Babylon, the one most handsome of all youthful men, the other loveliest of all Eastern girls, who lived in adjoining houses. And though they never truly spoke, only by looks and gestures, they fell in love and wanted to get married. Only their fathers forbade them talking or marrying. But of course, as with teenagers everywhere, they found a way. And luckily, the wall that their houses shared had a flaw, a tiny chink through which they could mutter or pass notes. There, many a time, they stood on either side, Thisbe on one and Pyramus the other. And when their warm breath touched from lip to lip, their sighs were such as this. Thou envious wall, why art thou standing in the way of those who die for love? What harm could happen thee shouldst thou permit us to enjoy our love? But if we ask too much, let us persuade that thou wilt open while we kiss but once. For we are not ungrateful. Unto thee we own our debt. Here thou hast left a way that breathed words may enter loving ears. So, obviously, they decide to run away together. They would meet at the tomb of Ninus, where safely they might hide unseen beneath the shadow of a tall mulberry tree, covered with snow-white fruit, close by a spring. Thisbe was the first to sneak away and waited at the tomb with her veil over her head. Imagine like, um, like just kind of like a gauzy sort of veil, right? A lioness came by though, so Thisbe fled, leaving her veil behind, which the lioness mauled, her jowls still bloody from her dinner. Of course, this is when Pyramus comes across the scene and seeing the lioness with the bloody mouth and Thisbe's bloodied and torn veil, assumes that the lioness killed Thisbe. And of course, we know where this is going because we're critical thinkers. Pyramus, in a fit of grief, disembowels himself. <laughs> As a macabre detail, and this is where the metamorphosis comes in, his blood shoots so high that it hits the mulberry tree, staining the white berries purple, and that's why mulberries, when they are ripe, are purple. 
It's not really why, obviously, but that's that's Ovid's. Shouldn't it be red? It's like a purpley red. Oh, oh Ovid okay. uses the word. It's like a, it's mulberry colored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I can kind yeah. of see that. Yeah. Okay. Blood, purpley red. Anyways, of course, Thisbe comes back and she sees Pyramus mortally wounded. She tries to rouse him. He does flutter his eyes open and she determines that he killed himself. So she decides that that is the only thing she can do too. Thy own right hand and thy great passion have destroyed thee. And I, my hand shall be as bold as thine. My love shall nerve me to the fatal deed. Thee I will follow to eternity. Thisbe fell upon Pyramus's blade, and after their funeral pyre, their parents joined their ashes together in one urn. Romeo and Juliet, like, got off easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound nearly as, like, ooh, just some poison. Ooh, yeah. I'd rather do that than disembowel myself. I know. The disemboweling thing. And it's really funny in the Latin, like, Ovid is very graphic with his language, and it's like his blood shot high, like, out of a plumber's pipe. It was, it's quite entertaining mm-hmm. in Latin. But... That all obviously should sound pretty familiar because, honestly, it's just missing the drama of Shakespeare, a friar, and a consummation, and you have Romeo and Juliet. But in all seriousness, while Shakespeare obviously borrowed quite heavily from Ovid's work, that is by no means the only source of inspiration for Romeo and Juliet. There's another important player in literary history whose adaptation of Pyramus and Thisbe we have to talk about. So, Jen, if I were to tell you that that this author is a medieval man who wrote in Middle English and is one of the predominant reasons English became a popular language at court. Could you guess who it is? I mean, Chaucer is literally the only yeah. guy I know. Jeffrey Chaucer. Okay, cool. Yeah, you're right. Yay! I did it! Huzzah! From knowledge, Good I knew job. stuff. Good Not job. just because of English class I was supposed to sit in. <laughs> Jeffrey Chaucer was born around 1342 in and around London and died in 1400 and is arguably most well-known for his work, The Canterbury Tales. In my mind, I always picture Paul Brittany in a movie, A Knight's Tale, which is like my favorite movie of all time, which is based on one of Chaucer's tales, but it's also super meta. And anyways, Chaucer was a court poet who wrote in Middle English during the time period when French, not modern French, but like a Middle French, um, was the language of the court. Chaucer revolutionized the English language, or more particularly, how the English language was viewed and used. He was born firmly middle class in medieval English society, and his family, as his name suggests, worked with leather and wine. He was well-educated and studied French, English, Latin, and Italian, and studied law before joining the king's service as an esquire and serving as a diplomat in the 1360s. An astute student of history will note these dates at the same time when something big was sweeping through Europe and Eurasia that would forever change the course of history. Jen, take a stab, maybe in a lymph node that is swollen. Oh, so some kind of plague. Yeah, the Black Plague. Okay, when you said yeah. stab, I was like, I, th- I thought plague, and then you said stab, and I was like, oh, Inquisition. Yeah, well, because yeah. I don't know years. And it's okay. Inquisition was before this. I thought that was like this. a hint. Yeah, no. You said well, stuff. like you lance it anyways. Oh, um. <laughs> yeah. All right, fine. So Jen is two for two, actually. Good I'm job. Nice. <coughs> yeah. Those are my only guessing games Being this sick one. makes me smarter. Oh. The Black Death, the Pestilence, the Great Mortality, call it what you will. The outbreak of bubonic plague arrived in Europe on board a ship that docked in Messina in October 1357. Messina was a major port of call, especially for pilgrims. And so the plague spread willy-nilly along trade and pilgrimage routes. Over the next five years, the plague would kill more than 20 million people in Europe alone, almost one-third of the continent's population. Suffice to say, just as COVID has impacted our society, economy, and culture, so too did the Black Death. Chaucer's work, The Canterbury Tales, published in 1392, is an excellent example of the plague's influence on literature. But we're not talking about The Canterbury Tales. We need to talk about Chaucer's other works. The Legend of Good Women. 
Good Women is a narrative poem told in iambic pentameter couplets and was published prior to Canterbury Tales around the year 1386, so like just six years before. Obviously still influenced by the plague, but you can see it less so in women than you can see it in Canterbury Tales. Interestingly enough, it was never finished, as there is some confusion between two separate prologues, and Chaucer, Chaucer himself refers to a disparate number of characters, some of whom are never actually included in the final copies prior to Chaucer's death. The Legend of Good Women is a collection of different tales told in a narrative style, meaning that there is an omniscient narrator who, in the prologue, encounters a collection of deities and is, and is admonished for his previous representation of women, such as in Chaucer's work Troilus and Cressida, 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 I can never say her name, that one. So Good Women is Chaucer's, aka the narrator's, attempt to represent women of mythological and, historic, and historical narratives in a better light. For instance, we have stories of Medea, of Jason Medea, Dido of the Aeneid, and Ariadne of the Minotaur Tales. When it comes to Pyramus and Thisbe, there of course were earlier adaptations in the 1300-odd years between Ovid and Chaucer, but Chaucer does pay homage directly to the Metamorphoses as source material for his inclusion of Thisbe, even though there were some key adaptations in Chaucer's version. We have to remember that Chaucer's work, in this case, was focused on telling the stories of women. The irony here is that the other women Chaucer writes about were historically were featured in historically misogynistic narratives, such as with Medea and her portrayal and the role she played with Jason's journey, thus requiring Chaucer to rework the perspective of these women to show them in a better light. With Thisbe, though, there was no sin that really needed to be rewritten, minus the suicide. Chaucer's version also shifted the emphasis of the tale, again, making it fit the framework of good women at large and changing the point from the metamorphosis of Ovid's version, the mulberry tree, to Thisbe and her actions. Thisbe's beauty is remarked upon just as an Ovid, but taken to the next level. Pyramus only hears of Thisbe because of her great beauty. She's not allowed to leave or see Pyramus because she must be kept under guard. Likewise, her fidelity sets her apart, not just in the penultimate scene of her uh, suicide in honor of her love, but also in regards to how she treats others, such as her friends. Just as Chaucer changes the perspective of Thisbe, he does so too for the reader with Pyramus. In Ovid, the two are nearly indistinguishable except for their sex and methods of death. In Chaucer, though, the prologue sets us up, the narrative decrying that good women are always betrayed by false men. The reader then is set to watch Pyramus enact some horrid deed that will lead to Thisbe's death. This, more than anything, stands out to me as something that Shakespeare would, later, would take later, and here's my soapbox moment of the episode. Romeo is a walking red flag. He is a teenage boy who just follows his lust around first to Rosalind who has no speaking lines in the actual play but is relegated to an object of desire that leads Romeo to the Capulet's house and thus to Juliet likewise with Juliet Romeo is the only reason Juliet dies she and the friar had under control but Romeo gives into anger and then to despair without thinking rationally he kills he kills Tybalt in revenge he kills Paris in grief and retribution he kills himself because he's a narcissist but anyway you get none of this from the original Ovid, and we'll talk about where some of this came in at the very end of this episode. But through Chaucer for now, whose work revolutionized the English language, Pyramus becomes a wretched character who leads to the death of a good woman, Thisbe. You get none of this from the original Ovid, but through Chaucer, Pyramus becomes a wretched character who leads to the death of a good woman, Thisbe. Thus, Romeo leads to the death of Juliet. Granted, Pyramus doesn't actually do anything wrong in Chaucer he's just ineffectual and hasty it plays into a larger narrative of chivalrous men and Chaucer's criticism of chivalry 
which we'll talk about in a very future episode sometime this summer. Pyramus makes Thisbe's death makes Thisbe's imagined death not about the tragic loss of her, but instead he makes it about himself. He worries about how he'll seek her forgiveness in the afterlife. He wants to know exactly why she died and left him behind. And most importantly, he says that she only died because he was delayed. My biding hath thou slain. All of this to say, without Chaucer's interpretation of Pyramus and Thisbe's actions, and especially of Pyramus's character, Romeo and Juliet would have looked, could have looked, much different. Chaucer also forewent the plot device of the mulberry tree. Given that the point shifted from Ovid's metamorphosis to Thisbe's goodness, there was no need for the tree. He also emphasized the tomb. Chaucer emphasized the tomb in his version, making it more of a grand statement. And of course, in Romeo and Juliet, that is where the final scene is set in the tomb. Now, there is one final part of the story to tell, and that is the source material outside of Pyramus and Thisbe. Because Romeo and Juliet, as characters, are not original characters to Shakespeare, they are in part taken from Pyramus and Thisbe, like we just talked about, but they are also taken from earlier Italian stories. Importantly, I want to talk about one man in particular, Luigi da Porto, and what is quite possibly the earliest version of the Montagues and Capulets. His publication, and get ready for my Italian accent here, Historia <coughs> Novelmente Ritrovata di Due Nobili Amanti, a newly found history of two noble lovers. Luigi was born in 1485 to one of the noble families of Vicenza, part of the Venetian state. A classic Renaissance man, he was a courtier, a lover, a writer, a poet, and a knight of the Republic, at a time when the Venetians were expanding so heavily that even the Holy Roman Empire was afraid of them. Luigi was a knight in the service of Vicenza from 1509 until 1511, when he was gravely injured in the neck, and he subsequently retired to Montorso Vic Vicentino, a family estate from which you can clearly see the two major strongholds belonging to the Scala family of Montecchio Maggiore. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you guys to click on so you can see what we're talking about when, we're, when I'm talking about these two fortresses and you'll be able to see the towers. Legend has it that the two towers of these strongholds, the highest vantage points of the surrounding landscape, inspired Luigi while writing the tale of Romeo and Juliet. It was during this time that Luigi really put pen to paper, and for the rest of his life until his death in 1529, he wrote a lot. He organized 70 letters, mostly written to his uncle who raised him during the time he was a soldier, and he then penned 73 poems. Most likely inspired by one of his letters, Luigi wrote Historia in 1524, though it wasn't until after his death that it was published sometime between 1530 and 1531. Like many historical authors, Luigi uses the I also love every time I say Luigi, all I can think of Luigi uses the prologue of Historia to couch his novella with authority. He claims that an archer who was in service with him when Luigi was a soldier told Luigi the story to help Luigi feel better about his own love issues. This is a story that happened in the archer's hometown of Verona. It's the story of two noble lovers who, following their passion, died miserably. Now, from here, true story True history and fiction get really closely intertwined, creating something that's very akin to a fable. For the truth, the narrative Luigi relates takes place at a time when Verona was ruled by Bartolomeo della Scala between 1301 and 1304. It is the same period Dante, yes, the Dante Alighieri, was condemned to death in Florence and sought refuge in Verona. Indeed, in the sixth chapter of Purgatory, Dante mentions Montecchi and Cabaletti families Capuletti among the families who fought in the civil clashes of that time. And as we already know, the two Scala fortresses were definitely influential on Luigi's imagination. But from there, storytelling takes hold. 
What Luigi fails to mention is that he was inspired by an earlier version of these two lovers, those written by Masukio Salertano. I can never say his name, last name, sorry, sorry. He was born in 1410, and he wrote this same tale with characters named Mariotto and Gianozza. Luigi changed their names instead to Romeo and Julieta and uses the inspiration of the clashing Montecchi and Capilettis to create tension between the two characters. From there, the story is vastly familiar. Romeo takes a poison while Julieta awakens in time to speak with him before he dies, causing her to commit suicide by holding her breath. Yeah. Yeah. After this tragedy, the feuding families reconcile. In Celeritano's telling, we see for the first time a secret marriage by a collaborative friar, a fight that ends in death, which results in Mariotto's exile, Giannozza's proposed marriage to another, a sleeping potion, and an undelivered message, though here Mariotto is executed and Giannozza dies of grief. Luigi's version is one of the first is one of the best to talk about when in relation to Shakespeare, because it's the first time we see the Warring Families and Fair Verona where first we set our scene. There are, naturally, other iterations we could talk about, of which I would be remiss not to not briefly mention Matteo Bandello's Julieta, Julieta, Julieta e Romeo from 1554, but I think that by this point, all of you lovely listeners and Jen are sick of learning about these literary breadcrumbs. Um, I will leave a link in the show notes for you to a book that talks about Luigi and Celeritano, as well as two other earlier versions of the story. So feel free to click on that and read it through if you know Italian. The Italian versions of the stories are up and you can read them. Um, and when Shakespeare combined this popular Italian story with Chaucer and Ovid's telling of noble young lovers, we end up with an amalgamation that has survived the ages. So as one last point, Jen, I want to ask you your opinion. Why do you think Romeo and Juliet remains one of Shakespeare's most famous plays? So I think it's really important that it's not exactly a trope. I guess I shouldn't phrase it that way, but like the tropes are very important of Mm -hmm. the star-crossed lovers, the Mm -hmm. enemies to lovers. Mm. I think that's why it is so endearing and why there's like a gazillion adaptions and why people get so obsessed with like seeing this play out in literature over and over again. I have to be honest, I'm not a Shakespeare person. I really don't care. This episode was painful. (laughs) I'm sorry. He's dead. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) But I do think that that whole idea of like, I'm not supposed to love you, but I do. My family's going to hate me for this. We're really not supposed to be together. Like that gets to some people on a romance level. I mean, it's obviously endearing because you've been talking about how ancient the whole concept is. Mm-hmm. you know yeah so i think that's kind of why it's so in beloved out of all of his plays knowing just like how much stuff he wrote and i mean it's it's got a bittersweet ending too yeah so it's not so much like some of his other plays where it's just like well everybody's dead goodbye yeah. you know it is like yes these two kids died they a little foolishly a little you know romantically however you want to put it but they died and it did bring the family together like that ended the feud so i i do think there's like these little glimmers of hope Mm. that people really appreciate that Mm -hmm. like you could sacrifice for something and and something it means something yeah it wasn't just like these two dumb kids like their their lives actually did contribute to their families finally getting along and stopping this violence and this bloodshed yeah which is not something that you really see that often in real life right you know so it is like a little bit of something of like something to look forward to yeah I was thinking about this question as I was wondering what you were going to say Mm -hmm. and I was like you know I wonder how much of it too has to deal with the 
accessibility of Romeo and Juliet as characters. Yeah. Because they are teenagers. They are rich, though. And they are rich. But <clears throat> so much... I So I am a Shakespeare nerd, in case this episode yeah. wasn't. What a shock. <laughs> I was no in idea. Shakespeare Club. I competed in Shakespeare monologue competitions, and I made it to the States. Thank you very much. With one of my renditions of Titania's... One of Titania's monologue from Midsummer Night's Dream. But anyways... Um, and I really feel like Shakespeare's characters, regardless of their station, all have some sort of degree of relatability to them. So to jump outside of Romeo and Juliet, you have, um, Ophelia from Hamlet, who is very mentally unstable. And I think that maybe a lot of people can kind of recognize the quote unquote crazy as something familiar. You have in Romeo and Juliet, you have these two teenagers who we've all been teenagers, and while we may not have been star-crossed lovers, <laughs> we all have had, you know, unrequited love, I think, at some point in our life. We've all had a crush that has ended horribly. Hopefully, I really hope you haven't had a crush that ended horribly. Well, not this horribly. Yeah, not this horribly. <laughs> this is really bad. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody that's, like, killed themselves instead of just talking to their families. Right, but I think at the same time, the drama of being yeah. a teenager, the I mean, drama that part, yeah. of that first love, of that like mm-hmm. life or death feeling. yeah and then for who was seeing the play at this time it's a theme that regardless of class or station it it really translated mm-hmm. to the audience because everybody at some point well okay not everybody because a romantics do exist but a lot of people have experienced that first love that first crush mm-hmm. and that let down hopefully not not the tragic story. ending yes. but you guys get what i'm going mm-hmm. towards and i really think that that it remains one of the reasons this might be the mo- one of the most popular. Okay. So, yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I feel like, too, it's more, it's not as high stakes as, like, Macbeth or Hamlet. Like, True. there's no, no con- Denmark is I mean, not yes, this in is a rotten state. Yeah, that, like, Verona does not have violence breaking out all the time between these two dumb families. Like, that is obviously very important, but it's a little more of, like, a basic human desire as opposed to these grander ideas of statehood or yeah stuff like it's just more fun i think than hamlet and there's not as many interconnected plots going on yeah it's simpler to follow that's a good yeah with a lot of his other tragedies i mean Mm -hmm. like hamlet and macbeth the king series it's Mm -hmm. so in-depth and you have to go okay who is this character what did they do in the last scene like what is like this one you're like okay no that's romeo that's juliet they're in love it's a tragedy so it's gonna end badly yeah um yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just relatable. Yeah. Relatable AF. Mm-hmm. And I think people want to see it end happily. So that yeah. is why so often we get all these new adaptions yeah. and why we put it so much in romance where obviously it's not a romance if it ends with them murdering somebody or dying <laughs> themselves. Yeah. And like we talked in our like way back, I think this was a year ago at this point in our homages episode and retellings episodes that... There's a lot of homages to Romeo and Juliet where, you know, it doesn't end in death. It's a romance book. So yeah. it's going to end in happily ever after, or happily ever after mm-hmm. for now. And that I think that, like you were saying, that gives people hope of something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Because that is one of the biggest tropes in romance, I would say. Yes. Like, if you wanted me to, link, to rank them, I think Enemies to Lovers Ugh, is, like, top five. It. Yes. Maybe even top three if I was going to sit down and really make up a list. What do you think is number one? Oh, God. I know. It, that's harder because I think that one depends too on the genre you're looking at. Yeah. My top three are definitely one bed trope, mm-hmm. and in no particular order, one bed trope, 
Enemies to Lovers, and I like Second Chance. I do like a Second Chance. They don't do Second Chance enough. No. And again, this is another opportunity. <coughs> this is a great opportunity for Second Chance because people kind of want to see it end happily. Yeah. So people like uh, fixing what Shakespeare did because it sucked. <laughs> hey he knew what he was doing if he was indeed a real person yeah we'll see um if you've never seen the movie anonymous you guys should watch it because in case you didn't know there's a whole uh conspiracy theory out there that shakespeare was not actually a real person and that it was just a pen name for a variety of people i wish possibly all the english nerds that would just die I so one of my senior projects in um, a Shakespeare class I had was doing the conspiracy theory of how Shakespeare was not actually a real person. And when I proposed it to my professor, he went, "Oh God." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Anyways. Okay. Beautiful. Thanks. And as one last final ultimate wait, point. Wait, wait, wait! I gotta talk about what I'm doing next time. Oh yeah, what are you doing Jeez. next time? Sorry. <laughs> well, in honor of Mother's Day, I decided that it's time we talk about children in romance novels. Ooh. I think that it is one of the most controversial maybe not con- controversial definitely is a word i want to use and also one of the most expected tropes of romance oh, that yeah. the happy ending includes children i think that's why it's controversial yeah so it really depends on what you like or what you don't like so i've been marinating on this for like two months and i don't know 100 percent what i'm gonna say yet but i definitely want to talk about kids in honor of mother's day and a nod to my own fear of them because yeah. children are like I, I am genuinely uncomfortable around babies so i think this will be funny for everybody <laughs> else so there you go Okay. So look forward to that, oh. parents. You can let me know how wrong I get it. Well, then, before we end, Jen, what are you reading now? So I just finished, again, for Memoir Book Club. Ha-ha. <laughs> uh, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. <laughs> That's a great segue right there. It was great, by the way. Oh, it yeah. It definitely deserves all the hype it's been getting. Really emotional, really tragic, but, like, it is genuinely funny. I know my Memoir Book Club was like, these aren't funny situations. But, honestly, the way she writes is hilarious. Again, relatable AF. So I think absolutely you don't necessarily want to just sit there and, oh, my mom was abusive and awful. (laughs) I mean, like you, she could have done that, but she did also throw in these moments of just like, no, (laughs) just these moments of just like utter hilarity. Yeah. So you can't really get it right now because honestly, the holds list for it is still Mm. insane, but it is absolutely a must read I think it was excellent I think even if you don't care so much about the the child star thing uh some of her experiences from working with Nickelodeon are Mm. really eye-opening too if you're uh, Nick kid yeah you know we were talking about your first audiobook yeah that should be your first audiobook no but it's not romance so I didn't know that was a prerequisite we run a romance podcast there's got to be a romance but you want to start your audiobook journey somewhere enjoyable that's that's not that enjoyable I'll let you go get the cookies out now Meanwhile, I, inspired by my trip to Boston uh, and the Boston Public Library, which, yes, I did visit the public library, obviously. I'm a librarian. I started uh, uh, listening to Woman in the Library by Sulari Gentile, which is a thriller. And it starts off with four strangers being bonded by a scream that's heard in the Boston Public Library. And then a body is found the next day. But what was really cool about this book was it breaks the fourth wall because the majority of the story is the manuscript of these four strangers Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out who the murderer is and it's being actively written by an omniscient narrator Mm -hmm. but then at the same time each chapter is broken up by feedback from that author's uh, beta reader which is its own second narrative journey Mm -hmm. that has 
a twist. Oh, cool. That's a sound. It's such a twist. It's like a lot of layers. Yes. And speaking of audiobooks, I highly recommend listening to this as an audiobook. It's on Hoopla for Onondaga County. Um, you can also probably get it on your ebook app Libby if you guys need help or recommendations figuring out how to use Libby you should contact your local librarian I'll learn with you <laughs> yeah a certain I should say it'll probably be a certain librarian that will be able to help you out with Libby um you guys know what I'm talking about but anyways I think that brings us to an end of this episode for which Jen is very glad and as one final parting shot from the bard good night good night Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be tomorrow. Thanks as always for listening. And Jen, what do we always say? Rage on! Bye, guys. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs>